You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Benson. All right, I'm going to pray for us and then we'll be in 1 Thessalonians 3, wrapping up some of that chapter today. So let's pray. God, we do praise you and thank you once again for the time that we had to come together as a church. God, we thank you so much that you have given us the written word in a language that we can read and understand. Um, God, as we... Uh, look at it together today, Father. I pray that you would teach us through the Holy Spirit, that we would be able to comprehend and understand exactly what you want us to know from this text. Um, God, that we would understand what you were saying to the church of Thessalonica and what you're saying to us today, that we'd be able to um, take it and weave it into our life as we leave today, God, that it would have a lasting effect, that we would uh, be faithful to hear the word today, um, receive it, and, and become doers of it by applying it to our life. And we just ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, we are coming to the end of chapter 3 already. Um, I told you last week that Paul is now kind of ending his introduction. That all up to this point, it's been introduction, it's been recap. It's been, this is what's already happened with you guys. It's been, this is what you did when we came. And now it's about to get into current situation. Here's things that the church of Thessalonica hasn't done yet that now needs to do. So he's getting into, in chapter 4, what we'll see coming up, new instruction for the church. So up to this point, it's been a lot of recap for them, a lot of affirmation uh, by Paul, letting them know what they're doing that is right. Um... And a lot of glory that's being given to uh, God for what he has done in this church in such a short amount of time. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, Paul is issuing a a prayer on behalf of this church and expressing some of his heartfelt desire for uh, what he wants to see long term from these people. We've already said that they are his crowning joy, they are his reward that... Uh, this church is what uh, makes everything worth it for Paul and makes all his effort worth it, seeing them grow, seeing them be faithful. And long term, he's still got this perspective of wanting to see these people make it to the end, make it to the second coming when Jesus does return. And um, that's what Paul is striving for, for their sanctification, for their holiness. Now, in, in what we're discussing today I think we have to admit that there's some, there's going to be some tension here about what God does and what we do in our sanctification. And we're going to see both aspects, that God does it absolutely, but God chooses to not do it without our participation. Okay, so we're going to see that, that when we, the things that we talk about today, we're talking about how to remain faithful until Christ returns. What do we need to do personally? What are some things that we can do to make sure that we remain faithful until that day when Jesus returns? And we're going to see some things that we need to do. But we need to recognize that ultimately it's God who does it. And he will do it. There's assurance in scripture that if we're truly believers, he will do these things. It's not up for discussion. He will accomplish this in the life of true believers. If it doesn't get accomplished in somebody's life, then they weren't a true believer. They weren't a Christian. They weren't really putting their faith and trust in Christ. So he will accomplish these things. But the way God chooses to do it is that he chooses to include us in his plan. 
And so in order for these things to happen, it does require us doing some things for ourselves. And he uses us to do it in the lives of others as well. And that's what we've been talking about with discipleship. God chooses to bring his people to maturity, but he uses disciplers to do that for people. Um, He doesn't just automatically make it happen. We don't express faith in Christ and then the next day wake up mature in Christ. It's a process that God assures us he will accomplish, but it will be done with our participation. So we're going to see both aspects today. And there's, there's some tension there because you don't want to give complete credit to God in the sense that it removes any responsibility for us. But you also don't want to put too much responsibility on us to where we lose the fact that God is the one who accomplishes this. So there's some tension there, and we're going to see both aspects there because Scripture presents both aspects. All right? We've been talking in this chapter, chapter 3, what it means to be a co-worker of the gospel, that Paul had sent Timothy specifically to, uh, to engage with this church about their sanctification, teaching them what it means to, to follow Christ and to be faithful. And we said that Paul ultimately couldn't get there, that um, for whatever reasons that we don't fully understand, Satan had hindered him from getting to this church. And so Paul made the decision, i got to send Timothy. Somebody has to go and teach these new believers more things about Christ. And so he sends Timothy. And so Timothy goes, and, and he's referred to as a co-worker of the gospel. So we've been talking about what it means to be a co-worker of the gospel. We've said a couple of things that it means is that we establish others in their faith, that we teach them the knowledge that they need, the, the doctrine that they need. We then exhort them in their faith. We teach them how to take that knowledge and apply it to everyday life, to, to make good, wise decisions based on the doctrine they know. Decisions that are, are difficult at times, decisions that sometimes are um, not clear-cut, that we take the doctrine that we know about Scripture and we, uh, we apply it to our life, and we teach people how to do that. We prepare others for attacks to their faith. We help them see that um, Satan does want to destroy their faith. Satan does want to hinder their faith. And, and Satan will bring trials into their life uh, that, that is ultimately under the authority of God, ultimately under the direction of God, but that Satan wants to destroy the gospel. And so we prepare people for that. We rejoice over their faith as they're progressing. We, we look for ways to rejoice over people that we're discipling as they make progress. We pray for their faith. And we contribute to their faith. We, we are faithful to be the ones to teach them and add to their faith. I challenged you last week um, because at the end of verse 10, chapter 3, verse 10, it says, As we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. I told you at the end of last week that Paul admits, hey, Things have been awesome with you guys. You have responded to the word. You are growing. You are being faithful. You are handling trials like a champion. I mean, you are just you are just responding exactly how I want you to respond. But he says, you're not there yet. Like There's still some things that need to happen. There's still some things that you need to know. There's still some things that you need to pl- apply. And he says, I need to come to supply what's lacking in your faith. And I challenge you at the end of last week. For you to start thinking about what is it for you that's lacking in your faith. Because none of us are, are where ultimately we're going. None of us are glorified. None of us are without sin. None of us have complete knowledge of, of Scripture or Christ. 
So where is it that you're lacking in your faith? If Paul was writing a letter to you and said, you know, Ben, I've got to come to you to supply what's lacking in your faith. Or Lizzie, I've got to come and supply what's lacking in your faith. What issues would he be addressing with you? And, And what can you do to address those issues yourself? How can you seek to have that lacking of faith in your own life? Um, perfected or um, how can you supply what's needed there so i would continue to challenge you to wrestle through that wrestle through what are some areas that you know you're lacking in your faith i've had conversations with some of you individually about what it is that you feel that's lacking in your faith and i want to continue to do that so that we can encourage one another to to fill up our faith to pursue depth in our faith so that we um, are becoming more and more what christ wants us to be all right um We get into verses 11 through 13 now. It says, Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. And Paul is pushing them towards holiness, pushing them to uh, to be blameless, anticipating that, that Christ is returning. And already we can see some tension there because we know, we know that we are holy and blameless before God already. That Christ has accomplished everything that we need. That if it takes perfection to get to heaven, which we believe scripture teaches that, takes perfection to get there, Christ has accomplished that perfection. And so we don't have to do anything to get to heaven. We don't have to perform good works to get to heaven. And yet Paul is telling us here, You need to be holy and blameless when Jesus comes back, implying that to some degree we're not what we need to be yet. And so there's some tension there. There's some uh, calling to do good works, even though we recognize that good works don't save us. And I would say that this tension gets misunderstood very quickly with new believers. And I think it's something that as you guys continue to move towards discipling others that you have to be aware of. Uh, a believer who initially puts faith and trust in Christ and then returns to thinking that good works is what validates them before God. That good works is what earns them favor with God. That if I'm good this week, God will love me more. And if I'm not so good this week, then God now loves me less. And it's a very dangerous position to be in, to, to be fluctuating like that based on your performance. It's a failure to recognize and understand the gospel. That Christ has accomplished everything that we need to earn God's favor. Favor has already been earned by God. Uh, an example of this in the book Pilgrim's Progress, Christian, who's the focal point of the story, Christian has, has made a decision to pursue Christ. Like He's trying to, uh, to get to the celestial city. And, and he's put on that path by a man named Evangelist, a guy who essentially shares the gospel with him. So Christian sets out, and he's going to the celestial city, and... Um, he has turned his back on his, his city. He's turned his back on his sin, and he's on his way. And it's not long down the path that he runs into a man named Mr. Legality, who is all about the law, all about being obedient to the law, and suggests to Christian that here's what you do to get there. All you have to do is simply obey the law, just do good things. And immediately Christian buys into this, sounds good, sounds like what I'm supposed to do. And he ultimately ends up in depression, and and he's distraught over the fact that he can't keep the law perfectly. And evangelist shows back up and puts him back on the path. And I think that's what has to happen for us as disciples, 
that we have to make sure that new believers in this church don't wander into thinking that good works is what validates them before God. But also having a correct perspective that good works do come as a result of salvation. And that's where there's some tension there. And that's why we discussed this morning. Uh, can a person get to heaven without good works? No, they can't. Barring the, the situation with the thief on the cross, a person cannot get to heaven without good works. Do they get to heaven because of their good works? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. But scripture is very clear, and we're going to see this in a minute more. Scripture is very clear. You were saved for good works. Ephesians tells us this. You were saved for good works. So, so to present a scenario of someone being saved but not producing good works, it, it, it's a contradiction. It's a contradiction. It, it, it's to say that Jesus was only able to accomplish a part of his purpose of salvation. He was able to save that person from hell, but couldn't seem to get the rest of it figured out. Couldn't seem to get this person to produce good works like they were supposed to do. And we'll see this more clearly in Ephesians, that good works do come as a result of salvation. Alright, so just initially in these three verses, some initial application that I can see already. The first is that overcoming the hindrances of Satan will require supernatural involvement. Overcoming the hindrances of Satan will require supernatural involvement. I told you a couple weeks ago, I did not want to ever give more credit to Satan and his demons than, than need be. But I also don't want us to be oblivious to the fact that they are working against us. They are working against the advancement of the gospel. And we've seen Paul identify this. He says... I'm trying to get to you guys. Why? To, to increase your faith, to grow you up in your faith. I'm trying to get there to teach the, the word to you, and Satan won't let me. So we know that Satan's priority is to keep the word from being taught. And Paul tells us in verse 11, Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. Direct our way to you. I told you that the Greek word for Satan hindering Paul was to tear up the road. To tear up a road to prevent someone from getting to somewhere. It was a military term. They would rip up the road to hinder troops from being able to go the way they needed to go. When Paul prays here that God, that Jesus, would direct their paths, it's a fixing of the road is what the Greek word means. It means to, um, to prepare a road or to make level. To basically smooth the road out for easy travel. And so what Paul's saying is, is that, yeah, right now Satan has hindered me from getting there, but I'm now praying to God that he would get involved in this and that he would now hinder Satan from doing what it is he's doing and that God would come in here, fix the road, level it out, and get me to you guys so that the word can be taught. So overcoming Satan is not something that we ultimately do. It's what God does, and we can pray for that. And I think we do need to be faithful to pray that God is, is hindering Satan, hindering Satan from hindering us from advancing the word. And already I can see in the weeks since we've talked about Satan and in the weeks now that we are moving towards affirming membership, I'm already starting to see ways that Satan wants to hinder what our church is doing. I can already see it. I mean, we get to this text and we start talking about it and, and I can already feel a sense of red alert going up. With Satan's forces. And he's already starting to try to work within our church. And I think to hinder 
what it is we want to do. And so we do need to be in prayer. We need to be in prayer that Satan will not hinder the advancement of the gospel. That he will keep sin out of this church. That he will keep us pursuing holiness and blamelessness before him. That we will be faithful to advance the gospel and it will not be hindered by Satan. Secondly, praying is an essential element to seeing disciples progress spiritually. Praying is an essential element to seeing disciples progress spiritually. Praying is an essential element to seeing disciples progress spiritually. His prayer here. Uh, may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God the Fa- and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. He's praying for increase in love. He's praying for holy living. He's praying for a correct understanding of the return of Jesus. He's praying for these things. He ain't given them a lick of instruction about it yet. He's preparing the way for chapters 4 and 5 of this passage by praying about it first for these people. He's not given any instruction yet. How often are we so quick to say, okay, I need to go talk to so-and-so about this, or I need to go instruct so-and-so about this, and we haven't prepared the way in prayer? Paul's saying the way to get effective change in somebody that we're discipling is to spend time praying for that change, because it's God who's going to do it. So Paul's not even started pinning chapter 4 and chapter 5 here. And he's already praying, God, give them an increase in love for each other. I'm about to talk to them about it. God, give them an increase in holiness because I'm about to instruct them about it. God, give them an understanding of what it means that you're coming back because I'm about to instruct them about it. Paul is very humble in his approach to disciple making because he recognizes if I'm not paving the way with prayer, if I don't have God directing my path here, if God's not clearing the road, then Satan will hinder this and it won't get through and it won't happen. I can't stress that enough to you guys. That if we're going to be effective in making disciples, it has to be bathed in prayer. It has to be led in prayer. And then number three, obeying faithfully makes sense in light of the certainty of Christ's return. Obeying faithfully makes sense in light of the certainty of Of Christ's return. I'm afraid too often we we treat the second coming of Jesus as though it's a maybe thing as opposed to a definite thing. We don't think about it much. Most of our understanding of it is not very good. It's confusing and so oftentimes it's not a, a point of thought for us. And because of that, we don't prepare like we should, like it's going to happen. We prepare like it, it might happen. But there's no urgency to prepare for it. To me, it's the difference between this scenario. I, I remember hating in school when a teacher would lecture and then get done with the lecture and say, um, you may want to study tonight because there's a chance we'll have a quiz tomorrow. Like, either tell me we're having a quiz or not because right now with the, with the chance of it, I'm having a hard time, like, really wanting to apply myself to study. You tell me we're having a quiz tomorrow, I'm clearing my schedule tonight. Like, I'm going to prepare for it. I'm going to get ready for it. When I walk into class tomorrow, you can count on the fact that I'm going to know this material. You tell me there's a chance of a quiz, I don't study the same way. I don't study the same way. I remember in college, and, and this was a change from going to Georgia 
to Virginia with school. Remember in college, we would stay up at night watching the Weather Channel to see if we were going to get schooled the next day or not. Like we would watch the schools at the bottom like, where's Liberty? Are we canceled yet? Are we canceled yet? Because we wanted to not do our homework and not study if we weren't having class. The fact that there, there was a chance that we weren't going to have class the next day really made it hard for us to get serious about what we were supposed to do. And so we would sit there and watch, we'd stay up late at night. Like, like we could have already been done with it and, and be in bed, but it was like, oh, are we going to have it? Are we not going to have it? And, and there was just no urgency because there was a chance that we might not. With Christ coming back, like we have to see that it is going to happen. That there's an urgency. And Paul's telling us, this is how you prepare for it. You have to be this way. You have to be pursuing these things to be ready for the return of Christ. It's not a maybe thing. It's a certain thing. Now, we don't know the timing of it. We don't know if it happens today, tomorrow, in our lifetime. We don't know. But we do know it will happen. And Paul is saying, I want you guys to be ready for it. I want you guys to be prepared for what's going to happen. Now, before we get into... um, These verses, I'm going to give you three points today on how to remain faithful until he comes. Before we look at that, I do want to stress to you, even though this is not the focal point of the passage, it's important for us to see what Paul does here in verse 11. He says, now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. There's such an affirmation of Trinity here in in this statement. And again, that's not Paul's point. He's not trying to do a Trinity discourse here on, on what it means to be God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. But what he's doing here should give us comfort and encouragement that the deity of Christ was accepted from the very beginning in the early church. Because there are, there are people today, there are religions today that would have us think that Jesus is not God. And that that was added to Christianity later down the road after Christ had been gone for a long time. Paul helps us see here that the, the deity of Christ was accepted from the very beginning. Just to give you an idea, verse 11, what the Greek looks like. Um, the word himself, where it says, now may our God and Father himself, the word himself there is singular. And the verb direct is singular in the Greek. And so really, the, the literal way this, this would have been read in the Greek, the sentence should have read, now may himself, our God and Father and Jesus Christ our Lord, direct. It's a singular pronoun with plural, from our perspective, proper nouns in the sentence. It doesn't compute with our English. It's incorrect English, unless we're talking about the Trinity. What he's saying here is that God and Jesus equal. God and Jesus same. We aren't talking about two distinct beings in the sense that they are two gods. He's saying God, the Father, Jesus our Lord, He, God, one God. And it's a really cool way to see the affirmation of the deity of Christ here. What's really cool that I think in um, 2 Thessalonians 2.16. 2 Thessalonians 2. This is just some freebie information before we really get into these verses. 2 Thessalonians 2.16. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself. And God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts. Exact same structure. You've got singular pronoun, himself. You've got singular verb, comfort. But you flip them now. You've got Jesus at the first part here. You've got God as the second part. And what it shows us is that they are co-equal. 
It doesn't, it doesn't have to be God the Father comes first and then Jesus Christ because he's inferior in any way to the Father. They're interchangeable here. Paul says, I can, I can put Jesus at the front and I can put God second, God the Father second. And so I think it's really important for us to see that in this passage, that the deity of Christ was affirmed from the very beginning, that Jesus is God, and we need to communicate that to people. Um, that, that's an that's a easy thing for new believers to kind of just kind of miss. When I'm teaching sixth graders, I'll ask a question and, um, you know, they might say Jesus because that's the correct answer. And then they might say God. And, and it concerns me sometimes because I want them to see that, hey, we're not talking about two different things here. And so I usually come back and say, you mean God the Father. Don't, don't think in terms of we've got God and we've got Jesus. No, we've got God the Father and we've got Jesus who are God. And so I think that's really important for us to see that Paul, he's not trying to give a discourse here on the Trinity, but he's affirming the Trinity. And sometimes um, people attack the Trinity and say, Scripture doesn't teach that Jesus is God. And, and it's undeniable here that Paul certainly believed that Jesus was God, equal with God, the same as God. All right. Um, how to remain faithful until he comes. Number one, a progressing faith, a progressing faith. This is Paul's prayer for this church, and he's laying it out. He says, this is what you need to do, what you need to be responsible for until Jesus comes back. A progressing faith. He says, now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. Paul says, I'm praying that God will get me to you. And what's the reason that Paul wants to get to the Thessalonians? What did he say his reason is? To supply what is lacking in their faith. Which gives us the indication here that our faith needs to be progressing until Jesus comes back. Because Paul's saying, I need to get to you. I'm praying that God will get me to you. So our faith has to be progressing. And you notice there, it takes divine power for this to happen. God works to establish the word. This is the God perspective here. This is the God part of this. Like God has to accomplish this for this to happen. For our faith to progress, God does it. It takes divine power for this to happen. God works to establish the word. In Matthew chapter 25, verse 28. Um, wrong verse. Let me see if I can find it real quick. Matthew 12. Go to Matthew 12. So change that in your notes if you need to. It's Matthew 12, 28 through 30. Jesus is talking to the Pharisees here. The Pharisees have accused him of casting out demons through the power of Satan. And Jesus says, are you serious? Like... Why would Satan cast out demons? Like, they're on the same team. So Jesus says, like, you're, you're basically being ridiculous. Like, you're looking for any reason not to believe me to the point that you're now thinking that Satan and demons are working against each other. So he says then, uh, 
Verse 28. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Jesus communicates a change in redemptive history here. And it doesn't resonate with us because we weren't there to really see how drastically different it was. If you think about it, Old Testament, Old Testament, we've got God working through Israel. And through a lot of Israel's history, we find out that um, a lot of Israel was not saved. Like a lot of Israel was unbelieving. I mean, we've got a lot of the the national Israelites who are um, spending eternity in hell for their rebellion and sin. They rejected God. They rejected his, his uh, promises to them. We also have very little evangelization going out to the other nations in the Old Testament. You see some pictures of, of Gentiles coming into saving faith. You've got um, Rahab who comes in. She's, uh, she's a part of Jericho. She's not, a, she's not a Jew. But she runs to the God of Israel and says, let me find mercy from him. We have Ruth, who's a Moabite, who says... Uh, Naomi, I'm going home with you. Your people are going to be my people. Your God's going to become my God. So there are incidences where Gentiles come to saving faith in the Old Testament. But by and large, there's not mass evangelization to the nations. Satan had his way in the Old Testament in a sense. We know that God you know, oversees that. But Satan was blinding the nations. He, they were blinded to the goodness of God. They were in ignorance. They were in rebellion. They were worshiping false gods, which the New Testament tells us were ultimately demons. Completely blinded. Jesus says, uh, everybody, you need to understand, something is, has, has just recently happened. I have essentially bound Satan, and I'm taking everything out of his house now. Um, you're about to see a massive change in redemptive history. We're about to have massive conversions to following me. And we see this initiated in the book of Acts where thousands start following Jesus. Day by day, they're adding to the church. And it's a direct result of what Jesus says here. He says, you don't break into somebody's house and steal their stuff unless you tie them up so that they can't stop you. So Jesus says, I've bound Satan. I have, I have taken care of Satan and his, uh, his ultimate blinding activity, and I'm taking stuff from his house now. Uh, people are coming to faith in Christ. They are transferring kingdoms, essentially. Remember, Satan had turned mankind against God in the garden. I mean, he had won a, a victory in his mind. Adam and Eve have rebelled. They're on my team now. And for a while, Old Testament, it looked like Satan's team outnumbered God's team. And Jesus steps in here and says, strong man, bound. I'm taking everything. Everybody's coming back over here now. And, and massive conversion starts happening. This is a work of God. Faith, increasing faith, that's a work of God. He's enabled it to happen by binding Satan according to what Jesus says here. And he's, he's winning people to himself now. So we can see that as a direct result of God that faith increases and that faith is working and, and faith is increasing in the lives of the church. Faith, I don't know how you guys defined it in your groups, um, but here's, here's a way for you to remember it in your notes. Faith is reliance and trust in the things that God has revealed to me. Faith is reliance and trust in the things that God has revealed to me.
And if you wanted to shorten that in your mind, it's trusting truth. It's trusting truth. Faith is me understanding what God says and me trusting it. Me me affirming that. Me saying, yeah, I believe that. I, I, I wholeheartedly believe that. In Romans chapter 4, verse 20. It's talking about Abraham. And, and make sure you understand, salvation has been the same since the beginning of, since the beginning of time. Like, salvation did, wasn't based on good works in the Old Testament and now based on grace in the New Testament. It's always been based on the work of Christ. It's always been work based on God's grace. But it's always been applied to us through faith. It's the same way for Abraham. Abraham was justified by his faith. He responded to what God told him. God revealed truth to Abraham. Abraham said, I believe you. I believe what you're saying. He demonstrated that belief belief by doing. Because the scripture also says Abraham was not only justified by faith, but by works. His works showed that his faith was genuine. He willingly put Isaac on the on the altar. And we talked, you know, way back that he believed that Isaac was either going to come back from the dead or God was going to provide a sacrifice. He knew that God could not take Isaac from him because God had already told him he's the covenant child. So Abraham's salvation applied to him through faith just like it's applied to us. We just have more revelation given to us. We just have the whole picture given to us now. Abraham had a little bit and he had to put his faith in that. We have the whole shebang in the, in the Old Testament and New Testament. We put our faith in that. So faith, faith has always been the, the vehicle for salvation. It's how it gets applied to us. It's trusting truth. And in Romans 4, 20-21, talking about Abraham, no distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith. Abraham progressed in his faith like we're talking. As he gave glory to God, verse 21, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Trusting truth. Trusting what God has said. That's what faith is. It's relying on the fact that God has said something, trusting that he will do it. And where necessary, that begins to get lived out in our life. 1 John 5. 1 John chapter 5. Verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? It's our faith that that ultimately is what helps us overcome the world. It's believing that this world is passing away. It's believing that this world is, is not worth it. It's believing that God's commands are not burdensome. It's reading scripture and saying that, or realizing that scripture says you're supposed to be pure until married. You're supposed to uh, put away falsehood and deceit. You're supposed to care about the needs of others above your own needs. And, and seeing those things and saying, yeah, like that's, that's the best life possible. That's how life should be lived. If we all lived life according to God's word, it would be heaven on earth in a sense. If, if everybody was able to follow God's commands where we were all caring about each other more than ourselves, it would be an unbelievable society. We wouldn't have to lock our doors. We wouldn't have to worry about any type of sin happening that would damage us. We could fully trust each other. God's commands should not be viewed as burdensome. God's not a cosmic killjoy trying to take away our fun here on this earth. He's trying to offer us what Jesus says is the abundant life. That the world, Satan who runs it, the world 
Satan comes to kill, to steal, and to destroy. He wants to destroy our life, steal our joy, ultimately destroy us for eternity. Jesus says, I come offering the abundant life. God's commands are not burdensome. I must expand my knowledge of God through his revealed truth. Talking about progressing faith. I must expand my knowledge of God through his revealed truth. 1 Peter 2, 2 talks about as, as babes, we are to crave the word of God. We are to crave the word of God. Here's how this works. Progressing faith. The more you know, the more you can believe. Does that make sense? If faith is trusting what God has said, then obviously the more you know, the more you can trust, which means your faith is progressing. So the way that we progress in our faith is that we know more so that we can trust more. So our faith increases. And the more we believe, the more inclined we will be to obey. Obedience flows out of it. Some implications from this. Am I progressing in my faith? Here's how you can judge whether or not you're, you're being faithful in this area. Do I find that my knowledge of the word is growing? Do I find that the knowledge of, my, of the word is growing? Is, is my understanding of God's word, is that growing? Is that increasing? Can I think back two months from now and, and think, I know God better today than I did two months from now or two months ago. I know God better now. Like, I understand his word better now than I did two months ago. That's a sign of progressing faith. You have expanded, you have expanded what you're trusting in. You've expanded your knowledge of God, and now your belief is bigger because you have more to believe in. You have more to trust in. Secondly, do I find that my trust is increasing in his sovereignty? Because we don't just want to increase our knowledge. We also want to make sure that our trust is increasing. Do we find that we're... Resting more and more in his sovereignty. James chapter 1. I posted a video about this uh, from James McDonald. James chapter 1. Verses 2 through 4 says. Count it all joy my brothers when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete. Lacking in nothing. God applies testing to our faith to increase our faith. So the way that we judge, is my faith increasing? We can look at it and say, is, is my trust in God's sovereignty increasing? Do I find myself experiencing trials and them being less and less joyless for me? Meaning, am I finding more joy in my trials because I recognize God's sovereign in this? God must be wanting to grow my faith in this. It's a clear understanding of what God's doing in your life. That's a sign of progressing faith, that you recognize that. And then third, do I find that my obedience is becoming more regular? We don't want to just know the word, we want to do the word, right? So progressing faith has to result in increased obedience or it's not doing what it needs to do. So progressing faith, I need to be increasing in my knowledge, increasing in my trust, which should lead me to increase in my obedience. Because if I'm really trusting God, then I should be obedient to him. Because I'm, I'm trusting and saying, what you're telling me to do is good. What you're telling me to do is right. What you're telling me to do is the best thing for me to do. So if our obedience is increasing, then it shows our trust is increasing as well. Because we're really taking God for what he says. That his ways are better than our ways. That what he tells us to do is for our good. 
Number two, an abounding love. An abounding love. Not only does Paul want to see their faith increase, he wants to see their love increase as well. He says, May our God and Father himself, our Lord Jesus, direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. And abounding love. It takes divine power for this to happen. God has to work for your love to increase. And um, in you know, it's God works to change our love. God works to change our love. First John chapter 2. Verse 15, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride and possessions, is not from the Father, but is from the world. If we're Christians, we don't, we don't love the world anymore. But if we're not Christians, then we do still love the world. That, that's, that's a determining factor there. What do you love? It's a sign of salvation for you in First John. If you still love the world, love the Father is not in you. You haven't been converted. You haven't been saved. Because if you're saved, God changes what you love. You stop loving the world and you start loving others. That's what First John tells us. That we start loving others. We stop loving ourselves. Because ultimately, love for the world is generated by love for self. I want to enjoy this world. I want the things of this world. I want to be happy. It's all about me. Conversion happens, we realize, wow, God's telling this huge story and it's not about me, it's about Christ. It's about Him and His glory, not my glory. I need to get on board with that story. And getting on board with that story is pointing other people to Christ, not to myself. It's not about me enjoying this world, it's about teaching others to enjoy Christ. Because the story is about Christ. So if we're truly converted, then our love changes. And God's the one who changes our love. A love for people is a true sign of faith, while a love for self is a true sign of unbelief. John 13, 34 through 35, Jesus says, You'll, people will know that you're my disciples by your love. People will know that you're truly saved by the way that you love, because it will be so drastically different than the way lost people love. We look at the 1 Timothy 6, 10. Um, maybe last week. It's a sign of the wrong type of love. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith. When we love the wrong thing, it destroys our faith. Demas is an example of that. One of Paul's partners in ministry turns his back, says, I'm done. I'm going back to the things of the world. Shows that he was never truly converted. Like he, he, he was still in love with the world. God hadn't changed him. Like he hadn't been converted. True conversion means that we love differently. We love differently. In your notes, every act of sin, every act of sin can be traced to a lack of love. I want you to think about that statement. Because I came up with that statement yesterday and I had to wrestle through and make sure I, I hold to that. Every act of sin can be traced to a lack of love. Every sinful thing that we do, if we engage in a sinful activity, it's a direct result of us not loving right. John, um, John chapter 13. John 14, yeah. John 13 was the previous one. John 14. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. 
So correct love generates obedience. If we really love God right, if we're really in love with God, then it generates obedience. But then, even more definitive about this statement is Romans 13. Romans chapter 13, verse 8. Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Paul says, you want to do the commandments? You want to to obey God the way that he wants you to? Then you love other people. Love other people and these things will flow out of that. Any act of sin is me not loving right. Whether it's anger, whether it's uh, deceit, whether it's uh, sexual sin, whether it's any of these things. They're all, I mean, he lists them off. He says, if you're committing these things, stealing, coveting, adultery, murder, it's because you're not loving. It's because you're loving wrongly. You're, You're loving yourself. You're loving the things of this world. You're seeking to satisfy your flesh, your desires. You obey these commandments when you love other people. See, if I love if I love Luke the way that I'm supposed to, I don't want to steal anything from him. I don't I don't want to do anything like that to him. I don't want to be I'm not going to be angry at him. I'm not going to I'm not going to be resentful towards him. I'm I'm going to love him. I'm going to, I'm going to interact with him totally different if I'm loving him and serving him. Paul says, "You fulfill the law by loving others." That's why Paul, praying for this church at Thessalonica, he says, I need you to increase in your love, because if that happens, then everything else just kind of falls into place for you. Yeah, I want you to not murder. Yeah, I want you to not commit adultery. Yeah, I want you to not be deceitful towards each other. I want you to do all these things. And those things will happen if your love increases, if your love abounds for each other. So every sin act can be traced to a lack of love. And then lastly, we must love the church. And the lost. Paul gives us a picture here of loving two different types of people. He says, may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all. So you've got two people here. I want your love to abound for each other in this church. I want you guys to fall in love with each other. I want you to serve each other. I want you to care about each other's spiritual needs. But I also need you to love everybody else outside too. Love them enough to bring them into this. So Paul's advocating two types of love. Christian brotherly love and then love for the lost. Both he wants for this church. In uh, Ephesians 4, verse 11. This is a picture of the church functioning the way that it's supposed to. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. For building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood. To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. For whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped... When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. 
It's a perfect picture of the body of Christ functioning the way that it's supposed to. Interacting in a way that it builds everybody up in the church to maturity. And it's all generated by love for each other. It's me caring not only about my spiritual growth, but caring exactly the same for your spiritual growth. And saying, I want to grow spiritually, but I want you to grow spiritually as well. And it it, it all produces a a church that grows up into spiritual maturity. So we love, we have, we need to have a love for each other that's increasing. And then lastly there, the love for the lost. Matthew 5, 44. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Paul's saying, I want your love to abound for each other, which is hopefully the easy part. It should hopefully be easy for us to love each other. We've all got the most important thing in common. The Holy Spirit lives inside of us. But Paul also wants them to love these Jewish people that are persecuting them. And that's the hard part. I mean, Paul's just rattled off. Hey, I know you're, I know you're being beaten. I know some of you are going to be killed for your faith. But I need you to love those people more and more as well. I need you to love them because we need to include them in this. We need to see them drawn to salvation. Paul's the perfect example of that. Paul, beaten and abused by Jewish people, and then in Romans says, if I could give up my salvation for the salvation of Jewish people, I would. I mean, that's his perspective on love for the people that are persecuting him. And and Paul's saying, we have to love our enemies. We have to love the lost and draw them into salvation as well. Luke chapter 6. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Paul wants their love to abound for each other and for the lost. Implication for us, am I abounding in my love? Do I find myself spending time regularly with members of Sovereign Hope? Do I find myself spending time regularly with members of Sovereign Hope? I mean, isn't that how typically love grows? Through spending time with somebody? We, we, we know that happens from a romantic sense, that the more we spend time with someone, the, the more chance there is that our love is going to grow for them. I know for, for Lauren and I, the, the more we spent time with each other the summer we were at Snowbird, the more our love grew for each other. The more I fell in love with her, the more I saw things in her um, that I desired for, for my wife. And, and the more I saw that come out in her, the more precious she became to me. It's the same in this church for us. We're not going to, and I think we said this from day one, that the, the hardest part that will happen for this church, for us to be unified, is getting people that have come from different places together on the same page as one church. Because we've got people that were at Mount Gilead, but not in the youth group. We've got people who were in the youth group, and then people that weren't at Mount Gilead at all. And now we're trying to become one church, and some of us love each other more than others because we've spent more time with each other. The only way for our love to grow and abound The way that Paul would desire for our church plant is through spending time together. The more you spend time with each other, the more you will become concerned with each other's spiritual growth. 
The more I spend time with you guys individually and understand who you are and what you're struggling with and what you're wrestling with and what you're going through, the more sensitive I am to wanting to pour my life into you. The more sensitive I am to wanting to pray for you, spend time with you, and and push you towards spiritual maturity. That love comes through me spending time with you guys. Your love can abound for each other more the more time you spend with each other. Do I find myself spending meaningful time with lost people? Not just spending time with lost people. Meaningful time with lost people. Because for a lot of us, we're around lost people all the time. But are we spending meaningful time with them? Are we engaging in spiritual conversations with them? Are we being open and honest to to advance the gospel by sharing it with lost people? By doing that, our love for lost people will grow. We, We... for some of us, we wrote down names today of individuals in our life that we want to begin targeting for the gospel. You will love them and crave their salvation more the more time you spend with them, the more meaningful time you spend with them. Then lastly, do I find myself, or it's not in your notes, but do I find myself becoming burdened for the perseverance of my church family and the salvation of my lost contacts? That's kind of a fruit that comes out of spending time. Do I become more and more burdened for the perseverance of people in this church? Because here's the thing, we are not exempt from people being here today and certain people not being here a few months from now because they've wandered from the faith. You need to get that picture in your mind because we saw it happen at Mount Gilead with our youth group. There were people who were being faithful to Christ, who were committed to Christ from all accounts that we could see. And then months later, they were nowhere to be found. They had abandoned the faith. They were no longer claiming to be Christians. They were no longer persevering in the faith. And we're not exempt from that. We're not exempt from you sitting next to somebody today and that person not being here a few months from now. If they're truly a Christian, they will persevere. But the way that God perseveres them is through us. Through us strengthening their faith. Through us supplying what is lacking in their faith so they don't turn from Christ when trials come. So they don't turn from Christ to go back to the things of this world. Paul says, I want your faith to increase and I want your love to abound so that this church grows up. Into maturity. We're going to stop right there for today. um, Because we haven't even talked about number three. Which is a purifying hope if you want to write that down. When we come back in two weeks, we'll really focus in on the last part of these verses. Talking about the return of Christ. And living holy, blameless lives in light of that. Which will give us a good breaking point. Because um, I do want to spend some time talking a little bit about doctrinally what the return of Christ looks like, second coming versus rapture and that type of thing, and that will give us more time to look at that if we take a break right here. Um, Real quick in closing, just to give you some application since we won't make it to the application part of this today. We're saying that our faith needs to be progressing, and we say that the way that our faith progresses and increases is that we have to increase our knowledge of God so that we can trust Him more. The way that happens is that you have to intake God's word. God's word has to find its way into you. And I'm here to tell you that what happens here on Sunday morning is not sufficient for you to grow up in your faith at the rate that you need to. This is not a sufficient diet of God's word for you to mature in your faith the way that you need to. I mean, think about it. It it will take us almost a year, if not longer, to get through one book of the Bible. At that rate, it would take us 
66 years for you to cover the Bible. And I'm not comfortable with that growth rate. I'm not okay with saying it's going to take 66 years for us to get through the Bible for everybody individually. Which means this is going to be great because we're going to get deep into certain sections of the Bible. But this can't be the only intake of God's word if you're wanting to progress in your faith the way that, that God wants you to according to these verses. It means that God's word has to become a priority in your life. And that takes time. That takes time. And so I want to encourage you to begin examining, like, where can I start fitting in more of God's word into my life? Because we're going to see how this all comes together with the return of Christ. That there's, there's, there's a judgment day coming. There's a day when Christ is returning. Paul says, you need to be holy and blameless when he comes back. Your faith needs to have been progressing. Your love needs to have been abound, abound, abounding. Your, your life needs to be looking holy and blameless when he returns. And in order for that to happen, it starts with our knowledge of God's word. And so the knowledge of God's word has to be increasing. And me and Jesse were talking about this week when we were hanging out. He said, you know, I want to, I want to know more of God's word. I want to be able to, to lead my family down the road spiritually. And he made the comment to me, and I felt this way before too, Jesse. He made the comment, he said, I don't want my wife and my kids to have to come ask you when they have a question about the Bible. He said, I want them to be able to know they can come to me and know that I can give them direction from God's word. I said, Jesse, the only way that happens is you have to get serious about intaking God's word into your life. Sunday mornings ain't going to cut it. Your family will always have to go to another source to get answers if Sunday morning is the only intake of God's word that you have. I told him, I said, we're going to have to, you know, we'll look at your schedule. We'll have to get creative. We'll find ways for you to get God's word more and more into your life so you can grow up spiritually. But it has to become a priority. If we're going to progress in our faith, abound in our love, and, and ultimately have a hope that's purified where we're waiting for Jesus, it takes priority. It takes making God's word a priority in our life. I want to encourage you with that as we leave that, um, you know, continue thinking through what we said last week. What's lacking in your faith? What needs to be added to your faith? And recognizing that the way to do that is through God's word. All right, let's pray. God, we do thank you so much for this day and the chance that we've had to um, feast on your word today together. God, I thank you so much that you have filled just these three verses with so much truth for our life. God, I do pray that we would be people who are progressing in our faith, that we are coming to a deeper knowledge and understanding of who you are, that that results in a love for each other and a love for lost people. God, we want to be knowledgeable about who you are, but God, we don't want to just be puffed up and, and know things about you. We want it to translate into a life of love for others. And so, God, we pray for that. God, I pray that you'd be with us over these next two weeks, that we would wrestle with that. And as we come back together uh, to wrap up these verses, God, I pray that you would teach us about the hope that we have that Jesus Christ is coming back for us one day. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.